the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello, and welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Amy Samuels. Dr. Amy Samuels earned her Doctorate of Education from the University of South Florida. She's currently an Assistant Professor in Instructional and Teacher Leadership at the University of Montevallo in Alabama. Amy teaches courses in Curriculum, Social Justice, and Professional Development. She's won Teaching Excellence Awards at almost every level of her career, both in the classroom and now at the university. Her area of passion is in culturally responsive pedagogy and making schools great places to learn for all students. I think she hits at a really important question, which is, how do we make schools great for everyone, regardless of the color of their skin or their cultural background? She gives us some things to think about to ensure that we're making classrooms and schools that serve all. If you like this episode, please connect with Intersection Education on our website, which is www.intersectioneducation.com, on Facebook, or on Twitter, which is at Intersection Ed. It also helps us out when you rate or leave a review on iTunes. Here's my conversation with Dr. Amy Samuels. Hi, Dr. Samuels. Thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, I know about you is that you lived a long time in Florida and that you now work in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking uh, longingly about three weeks ago when we still had snow on the ground up here in Alberta, how it must be just so nice to live in a place where there is no snow, but you've not always lived there. Um, what What does it feel like going from a place like Pennsylvania where you get a three, four seasons, and then going down and living in Florida now. Have you adjusted? Is, do you, does it ever really go away, this idea of thinking it's going to snow? So, you know, I spent the first 22 years of my life in Pennsylvania, and I moved to Maryland for a short amount of time. But I spent the largest part of my adult life in Florida. So it's warm, you know, nearly all year when, <clears throat> what do we call winter, it, it might get down. Occasionally, it did get down to like the 40s at night and, you know, like 60 or 70 during the day. But here in Alabama, it's we do have more seasons than we did in Florida. Actually, this year, we got a, a pretty wild snowstorm at the beginning of December where campus was closed. And I mean, it was a, a really pretty like Pennsylvania winter with nice snow and, student, uh, you know, the kids in the neighborhood were building snowmen and all of that stuff. So um, I guess you, you adjust to anywhere that you live. and you know, the 92 degree weather of today is, uh, takes a little bit more adjustment than some of the, some of the other places, but you, you make it, you make it work, I guess. Absolutely. And we'll talk about, uh, I'm sure down the road, adjusting, uh, even in education to where we live. But, um, tell us about how, how you came to be a teacher. What were, uh, some of the things and early experiences that led you get into, to choosing teaching as a career? So there are definitely a lot of educators in my family. One of my grandmothers was a teacher, and I have 
other people in my family who are teachers or professors in higher education. So it was definitely something that was always part of the, I guess, the, the discourse when I was a child. I remember when I was in third grade on my Santa wish list, I asked for a chalkboard. And I taught um, imaginary students for probably a year on my cute little chalkboard with my white chalk. Um, so I always really just had this aspiration to be a teacher. I also did have a, a little bit of time where I wanted to be a marine biologist because I'm infatuated with the beauty of dolphins, but not a very practical career choice for a, a girl from rural Pennsylvania. So I guess maybe the, the practical nature of me decided that teaching was a little more realistic and I just kind of continued to be taken back to that. Wow, that sounds, yeah, that, that sounds like a marine biologist is probably more attuned to your current location where you live as opposed to, yeah, Pennsylvania. Now, um, yeah. tell, tell me, tell me, tell me a little teaching. What, what was your first contract? Where did you start as a teacher? So I, I graduated from undergraduate school to be a teacher in, um, to be a high school, uh, a secondary social studies teacher. So my first job offer was in the city of Baltimore. So I taught um, at a school in Baltimore City for two years. Um, I taught at a high school. It was um, a really great place to start my teaching career and really just get to know students and the profession of teaching. Yeah. And um, you did move on from there. Tell me about the Empowering Effective Teachers Grant Program. <laughs> Because I didn't know about it till I was doing a bit of research on on your on where you had worked, and, and what was your role with this program? Mm -hmm. So after I left Baltimore, I moved to Florida, and I spent um, quite a few years there. I guess seven years working as a, a social studies teacher in middle schools. But there, an opportunity came about where the Bill Gates Foundation funded a grant it was called Empowering Effective Teachers. And the grant was kind of twofold. It was to prepare effective teachers as well as effective leaders. And, you know, as the research shows that teacher retention is definitely an issue and a lot of teachers leave the career within their first five years. So the goal of the grant was really to ensure that teachers are set up for success and they are also set up to really accelerate student achievement. And the results were pretty astounding. So before the, the grant started and the mentors were provided for first year and second year teachers, our retention rate from teachers going for their first to their second year or their second to their third year was kind of in the low 70%. But after um, first year teachers and second year teachers were assigned full-time mentors, the retention rate raised to about the low 90s. I think it was 92%. So that's not necessarily teachers staying in the exact same position, but it was teachers being retained in the teaching profession within the same district. And what was it that, that you guys did to, to have that efficiency rate? I know people around not only the United States, but around the world are looking at retaining their teachers. What was it about that program, the Empowering Effective Teachers Grant Program, that you think had an impact on teachers staying in teaching? I guess my own personal opinion would just be the idea that they were supported. You know, the research definitely shows that the major reason that teachers leave in the first five years is that they don't feel supported. And particularly um, where I was working, it was a very large district. At the time, it was the eighth largest district in the United States. And sometimes I feel that if you're a teacher in a school of 1,200 teachers, I mean, 1,200 students, 
2,000 students, 3,000 students at times, you can definitely get lost in all of that and you feel that there's no one there to, you know, be your advocate or your coach or your, your cheerleader. So I think that just the, the fundamental part of the grant where we develop support systems for teachers in whatever area it might be that they need with, you know, assistance with classroom management or assessment or lesson planning, because it was very differentiated based on their particular needs. So I would just say if, you know, other other districts are, are looking for ways to increase retention, one of the biggest ways is ensuring that our teachers feel that they are supported by administration, central office, and the district. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you. Um, now, I think congratulations is in order. Uh, I heard that you just received the Graduate Teaching Award at the University of Montevallo. Tell me about this award and, and why you think that uh, that they bestowed it upon upon yourself. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I did. I received the Graduate Teaching Award, and I was very humbled by it because it. I've, I'm only in my third year here, so there are many other faculty members on staff who are, in my opinion, much more deserving than myself. Um, but I was definitely... I'm very humbled and very pleased because teaching is my passion. So to be awarded in teaching was really kind of a a big deal to me. So the award goes, um, faculty, staff, and students can nominate any faculty member that teaches graduate students. And I teach in three different graduate programs at our university. So there were um, a lot of nominations from students, faculty, and staff about, I guess, when looking at some of the feedback, my commitment and dedication to students and my passion to helping them succeed. That's great. Now, before we get into to your area of research, I wanted to back that up a little bit. Tell me about the transition between you becoming a teacher and then thinking about working at a university um, on the, in that role, and then even perhaps how you came to be at the University of Montevallo. So as I just said, I've, you know, my, my biggest passion is teaching. So I've taught middle school, I've taught high school, and I've taught higher ed in a very wide range of, of, of students in higher ed in regards to age. So um, I guess one of the things about higher ed is that you do have the potential to impact a larger population because when you are working to, I, I currently, I teach in um, an educational specialist degree for teacher leadership and a master's in educational specialist degree for instructional leadership. So when I think about, you know, if I were a cl- if I were still a classroom teacher, I would have a, a class of, you know, perhaps 30 students, you know, in several classes a day. But in, in my role in preparing teachers and preparing leaders, I feel that I can use my, my skill set and my knowledge regarding cultural responsiveness and inclusivity to really incorporate those ideas and encourage teachers and leaders to go out in schools and foster these concepts in their own practice. That's great. And, and did you start your, um, your uh, higher education teaching career at the University of Montevallo? I did. So I adjuncted at the University of South Florida, which is where I earned my doctorate, but that was only an adjunct position. So my first right. full-time position is here at University of Montevallo. Now, I was not very, uh, I'm not going to lie, I'm not, I was not very aware uh, of its even ex- existence, the University of Montevallo. Uh, tell me where it is. Tell me what it's known for. Um, 
yeah, since since discovering it, I've actually seen a lot of positive uh, things said about it. But I'd, I'd be interested to see your point of view. So University of Montevallo, um, it's like it's straight out of a movie site. So when I actually came here for my job interview, I fell in love because everything, you know, we have cobblestone and brick streets and roads and you know, sidewalks and the buildings are old and brick and gorgeous. But it's a very interesting place. It's about 30 minutes south of Birmingham, Alabama. And, um, you know, when I tell people I live in Alabama, I frequently get questions which relate to the history of racism and segregation. So I'm assuming some people who are listening to this might think about that, that as well. So it's really interesting to talk about Montevallo as being a, a very different, a di- very different space. So it is the only public liberal arts school in the state of, of Alabama. And I think a student, a student is drawn to Montevallo because of its, the open mindset that we, that we have there. And it, we have a very diverse student body and students that are willing to embrace diversity and ideas that you might not see in some areas of Alabama or some regions of the, the conservative deep South. Well, that, that works really well for the, for the next question. And that's getting into the crux of, of what your focus is um, f- for some mm-hmm. of your research, not the only one. And that's um, this culturally responsive pedagogy and this idea of, um, of bringing the idea of culture and uh, bias into our knowledge of teaching and our lived experience. So, I mean, if someone was to start from the very beginning, you're saying, okay, I'm going to start with thinking about culturally responsive pedagogy. Where would one start? What are the initial things that you would tell someone who is just exploring this subject? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So thinking about culturally responsive pedagogy, it's basically in your teaching practice, how do you respond to culture? And research shows that across the world, the dominant culture tends to be the culture to which teachers respond to in the classroom. However, we know that the dominant culture is not the only culture represented in our classes or our, you know, our communities or our states or our country. So we want to be sure that we are responding to all cultures. So really thinking about how are we being inclusive and representative and promoting equity of not just the dominant population, but all student populations and it's not just in the United States where this happens, but there tend to be, you know, there tends to be a dominant group and there tends to be traditionally disenfranchised or traditionally marginalized groups. So when we think about culturally responsive pedagogy, one of the really important areas to reflect is the idea of are traditionally marginalized groups being served in equitable ways and is their story being included and representative, represented in the curriculum. And there's this really great book by Ronald Takaki called it a different, uh, a different mirror. And he talks about the, this idea of he's talking about the American story. And so many times you have these marginalized stories kind of on, like on the side of the textbook, but his idea is really are all stories weaved throughout the American fabric. And I think that that's a really great analogy when you're thinking about culturally responsive pedagogy, all of these different threads of people that live in our countries are their stories represented, respected, and being voiced in honorable ways? So 
what is uh, a tool that one might use? What is a practice one might use to become more aware of um, the influence of that dominant culture in education? Are there are there practical things that one can do or that you would point people to, to, to start to uncover whether their practices are being influenced by these dominant cultures? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think one of the most important things, which I, I frequently talk about to my students as well as myself, just the idea of awareness. So, and allowing yourself to question the norm. So, so frequently we, we do something because that's the way it's always been done. So we really have to be willing to take a step back and reflect on what are the books that we're using? Are the books representative of the students in our classrooms, in our community? What are the, you know, the enrichment activities that we're doing? What are the stories that we're telling? And are they representative? And if they're not, how can we make changes to ensure that we're using books or using materials that are inclusive and representative to all students? That's great. Um, now, the other part of this culturally responsive pedagogy is, is perhaps the um, teaching of culturally responsive uh, practices to kids. Um, that means mm-hmm. the teachers as the um, as someone who, who creates a society that is more just, that is more culturally responsive. How do you frame that question? Or what are some practical advice uh, that you give to teachers to, to create a classroom that is uh, more just? So it's interesting that you use the word just because in a lot of the literature, they talk about democratizing the classroom. And in a lot of classrooms, you know, the teacher is the person in charge or the sage, on, you know, the sage on the stage. But really, when we think about how are we going to validate and affirm experiences of all students, we need to ensure that students have a voice and that their stories are heard. So one of the strategies is really allowing teachers to see the need to allow themselves to be a learner. Because I I think I learn from my students all the time, Um, whether I was in middle school, high school, in higher ed, I'm constantly learning from their experiences and their stories. So I think allowing teachers to realize that they don't have to know everything and that their students bring so many assets to the table and really taking advantage of their knowledge and their stories is, is so, so, so critical. Well, yeah, that makes, that makes sense as well. Although we are usually the curator of those stories. So it's, uh, from what I'm hearing from you, it's kind of the (laughs) back and forth between ensuring that the stories that we choose are reflective of the society in which we live. Now, would this be similar? Go ahead. I was going to say that reminds me of it. What's the African proverb? Tales of tales of the hunt will always um, tales of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Mm. So, and I know I just messed that up, but thinking about what is the lion's perspective in this story, and allowing ourselves if we've always been told the story of the hunter, that is truth to us. But really, to be culturally responsive, we need to recognize that there is a lion, and the lion does have a story, and it is valuable as well. So if we are curating constantly the hunter's story, that is not at all being culturally responsive. So how do we work in the other stories and the other perspectives as alternative viewpoints? 
Now, I know that in the Deep South, this is probably uh, an issue around race, which is probably um, people of African descent, maybe um, Hispanic descent. But do you have any research or lived experience with perhaps other cultures? Have you seen anything? Do the same rules apply, for instance, if you're working with uh, an indigenous culture or or perhaps another strong um, ethnic minority, um, for instance, um, in the Vancouver area, working with a Chinese or Mandarin population? So absolutely. So um, I think earlier I referred to this as well, but when you think about colonialism all over the world, you have the idea, it always comes back to power and oppression. So who has the power to construct the stories, construct the narrative and decide where the resources and opportunities are going to go? And that frequently leaves some people not as advantaged or perhaps disadvantaged from the dominant culture. So I think that anywhere you have a, you know, a dominant culture and a historically disenfranchised group, you can see, you can see this trend happening. Obviously, it's going to look different based on different geographic areas and different cultures. But I think just the the story of colonialism lends itself to this, the story of the dominant narrative being perpetuated. So the question is, you know, how do we as educators, whether we're in Vancouver or whether we're in Arizona, you know, or um, in, in New York City, perhaps work to kind of disrupt that dominant narrative. We've been talking a lot about classroom teachers. Do you have any tips for a school leader, so a principal or maybe even a superintendent, about tools that they might be able to use to create a more equitable and just schools or even school divisions? Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest things, which is, you know, some I, I do volunteer services at schools for this as well is really just working on professional development with teachers because this is a an area where there has not been a lot of focus or attention so sometimes we don't know what we don't know and since it tends to be such a controversial topic people are hesitant to take risk and engage in these type of conversations so um when i was working in in tampa for example i designed a a professional development on culturally responsive teaching and teachers were very, very interested in attending that. So I think about the idea of a leader, what type of information and skills do our teachers need? And then building, you know, professional development and trainings and workshops, potentially book studies around that. The other thing too, was when we, when we think about disproportionality. So for example, in our schools, if our you know, students of color are being suspended or receiving referrals at disproportionate rates. I think as a leader, it's important to just show data to teachers and have conversations about why this might be happening and then think about ways that we can make more steps towards advocacy. Now, what have you seen when you're talking about more ways? What have you discovered as the barrier to teachers and schools creating a more racially and culturally inclusive class? Uh, you probably have some lived experience or things that they would say that, that maybe they thought were barriers that weren't. Um, what are those things impeding progress at this point, do you think? So I think sometimes, you know, the Sonia Nieto, she's one of the, the gurus in cultural responsiveness, and she always talks about the need to know oneself. And I think sometimes we say that we know ourselves, but not necessarily in a 100% honest way, because we all, every single one of us across the world, have biases. And to say that we have biases is not necessarily a, you know, 
a fun thing to think about ourselves. So, you know, I always talk to my students about the idea that it's not necessarily a negative thing to have them because we are so normed by media and by the dominant culture. But the question is, when we think something that might not be socially just or that might not be equitable, do we allow ourselves to challenge our thoughts and think about how to move forward? So I think definitely one of those biggest barriers is that idea of implicit bias. And um, there's a, a great study that came out recently by, by Gilliam. I think it was out of Yale, and I'm pretty sure it was in 2016. And it talks about just even as, as early as pre-K, teachers show evidence of having implicit bias, and they expect students of color to misbehave at greater rates than they expect white students to misbehave. So I think just having open and honest conversations, but in a, in, in a culture where honesty about these topics is not necessarily embraced, that is definitely a barrier and a challenge. Yeah. And that, that leads us into my next question. And that's that there does seem to be, at least from my outside perspective, from Canada looking into the United States, an increase in awareness about race especially the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Do you think that that is going to have an effect and what it might mean for education? I sure hope so. Um, it's interesting that you asked that because I just published a piece with my, my husband as well as a colleague of ours um, called The Revolution Will Be Live, Examining Educational Injustice Through the Lens of Black Lives Matter. And one of the things I think is that you know, Black Lives Matter has brought attention to inequity. And perhaps there will be this translation of allowing ourselves to recognize, you know, there, there's also in schools, for example, the, the school to prison pipeline, which starts with disproportionality and students of color being suspended at larger rates. And I, the last thing I read, there's um, a statistic that black students are suspended at a rate three times greater than white students. And when you look at the Deep South, that disproportionality is even greater. So I think that just the willingness to have the conversations, um, you know, a lot of people say that racism has always existed in the United States. It's just now that it's being videotaped. So when you have these two men being, you know, arrested at Starbucks for sitting at a table, I've been to Starbucks so many times and I've never purchased anything and worked on my laptop or had conversations or met people and I've never been approached by management. So just to think about why and to think about, and I always go back to this idea, is, is it implicit bias? And I believe that it is. And I commend Starbucks for, um, I think it's next week, they're shutting their stores down and they're having an implicit bias training for, um, for their employees. So I think when we think about how does this impl implicit bias translate into schools with the culture of lower expectations or the deficit thinking or thinking that our low SES communities don't bring as much value to the table. How do we challenge these deficits and see that regardless of zip code, that all of our students bring um, you know, assets to us when they come to us and they all have a story and a culture that is, is valuable and worthy and will, uh, and we should be willing to explore and include that. Yeah. Well, hopefully that this is the, this is the start of a movement. Uh, so yeah, here's to hoping. Mm -hmm. um, let's get into a little bit away from your research, but probably still, let's face it, uh, it's really a part of what you do. So it'll probably be implied. What is one thing about education that you believe is true that most other people might disagree with you about? 
So that's a tough one. Um, and I wouldn't say that most other people disagree with me with this, but I 100% believe that all students and, par- and parents care and have a vested education in, have a vested interest in education. And I think that there are some people, um, some educators, some leaders, unfortunately, who think that some parents and students care more than others. And so I think that it's really up to us to kind of shift the paradigm and alter experiences because I don't think that there, I don't believe that there are students and parents who don't care. I believe that maybe they have been sent a message that they aren't valued or their experience wasn't positive. Um, So I would, you know, I I believe that they do care and I would challenge those who might employ that sense of deficit thinking to think about why they might think that a student or a parent doesn't care or value education. Right. So start thinking about uh, the environment or how we might engage them to be a more active participant in the education system, I guess, eh? Absolutely. So, you know, there's a lot of research, too, that points back to some parents are hesitant to come to schools because their educational experience wasn't positive. So as a leader or as a teacher, we need to think about ways that we're fostering a climate and culture that is inclusive to our community that we serve and inviting to get people to come and participate and be involved. Now, I've just thought of this. Do you think that a barrier to the true engagement is also um, parents seeing themselves in the teaching staff? And I think about that because I read a study once um, that was reviewing uh, some historical choices around education, and they were saying that what uh, in the late 70s, early 60s, early 60s to even early 70s, um, teachers, sorry, teachers were predominantly white. And so parents of children of um, of black families, they just didn't see themselves as teachers. They just didn't see themselves in this educational mm-hmm. experience. Is this still true where you were? Is this, have you seen an update on that? And do you think that that is a piece that we need to be aware of when we're hiring teachers so that parents can meaningfully engage with the education system? I 100% agree with that. So, you know, hiring and retaining a diverse staff is critical. There was um, something that I read recently, and I... I feel terrible because I can't cite the study or the name, but showing that if a, if a student ha- if a student of color has one teacher of color in their K-12 experience, they are more likely to, um, their, their achievement will increase. And this also reminds me of, um, I was at the National Association of Multicultural Education Conference, I guess it was two years ago, and there was a man and he was presenting some of his research and he was talking about how he was speaking to a student a student group, and there were white and black and Hispanic students in the group. And he gave them all a sheet of paper and he said, okay, so I want you to imagine that you are an adult and you are coming back to this school tomorrow. I want you to write on the sheet of paper what job you will have. And it was so incredibly powerful that every black and Hispanic student wrote that they would be Um, some type of staff member working in the cafeteria or the janitorial staff. And every single white student wrote that they would be a teacher or a principal. So I think that that just that idea that we show students opportunities and options and possibilities is so critical in order to shift the paradigm for equity and social justice. Right. Let's move on to our, my next question. When you think of the word or the term master teacher, 
What comes to mind? Is there a person that comes to mind? And why, why do those images come to your head when the term master teacher is said? So when I think about master teacher, I think about my very first job in Baltimore. And there was a teacher down the hall. She was also a social studies teacher. And she was not assigned as my mentor, but I, I personally labeled her as my mentor. And I would go to her probably at least two times a day, once before school, once after school, sometimes during lunch or planning, and ask her questions and just pick her brain about how to do things better or when I just had a terrible day, like, what, what do I need to do differently? And I guess I would call her a master because she was the master of relationships. Students really responded to anything that she said, anything that she did, anything that she would ask them, they would do. And it wasn't because they feared her. It was because they loved her and they respected her. And I think just, you know, that's, I went to school to be a teacher, but that's something that you are never taught. So really thinking about the, how do you craft human relationships and see yourself as valuable to, to students and seeing students as valuable to you. And that's to me why she will always be a master. Do you think that that's a skill that we can teach in universities, this this idea of relationship building? Because I agree with you, the best teachers that I've seen have been those that have built the most effective relationships as well. But there is a question that um, that I've gotten into with, with other people on this show about, is that relationship building something we can actually teach in universities? What are your thoughts on that? That's a tough one as well. Um, and I would think that Exposure is critical because in my own experience, I don't know how much conversation or how much learning per se I had about the importance of relationships. I know that sometimes it's worked into classroom management courses and um, some teacher education programs are doing a better job at that. I think a lot of it needs to be seen in practice and then also allowing yourself to engage in that. But I think an important part of sometimes the message that gets lost particularly in the new political era of curriculum and accountability as seeing students as test scores or seeing students as, as numbers. And when that happens, we really lose sight of what really matters. And that is students are going to be much more responsive when we have relationships with them and when we can build a, you know, a, a community of humanity in our classrooms. And that's, that, that's just so powerful. Yeah. Now, we've talked a lot in this podcast about perhaps the shortcomings um, of, of our current education system, but but I'd like to look at the flip side of that. If you look at your education system where you are, perhaps look at it more largely, as large as you wish, what are some of the things that you would say that we're quite good at? What, what would you say are some of the successes that we should celebrate um, right now? Mm-hmm. I definitely think... Um, we do a wonderful job at educating every child. There are um, some parts of the world, and I even remember when I was in high school, you know, I was just recently, and I don't even know why I thought back to this, but I was thinking back to when I went to high school, and we had students with exceptionalities who were not included in, you know, the mainstream curriculum. And I remember thinking of their classroom, and there were no windows in the classroom. And I feel like every other classroom in the school had windows and had light. And I remember thinking, why was it that way? And I feel that we have really come such a long way in serving our students and ensuring that we're educating every child. The, the university that I work at actually just started um, a great program. It's called Falcons in Flight. 
and we partnered with a local high school and students with exceptionalities who are 18 to 21 are now able to come to our college campus um, during the, I think it's three days a week. And so instead of going to their high school, they get to experience life on a campus and they also have experience in the dorms and, you know, different things that, that could happen in a college experience for a child who would go to college since most of the students will likely not go to college. So I think that idea of providing access and opportunities and ideas for the future and possibilities is something that we do a really nice job at. We're going to get into what I call the lightning round, and that's where I ask for a bit of a shorter answer. Kind of the first thing that pops to your head, and um, if, if it's particularly interesting, we'll, we'll kind of go into that a bit more. But the idea here is just a short answer to the question. First one is, what is your favorite education-related application or website? So I would say that it would be a website, and it would be Teaching Tolerance, which is out of Southern Poverty Law Center. What's a book that you quote or refer to or that you have marked up probably the most? So I would say the book that was life-changing to me was I read it in undergraduate school, Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozel. He really got me to understand the disparities in education in rural and urban America. He's written something recently, I believe it's called Shame of, um, Shame of the Nation, Shame of a Nation, where he talks about apartheid schooling in the United States. So um, definitely work by Kozel has had a huge impact on my life and my practice. Is there any school or educational system that you'd like to visit to learn more about them or see some things or learn some new things to bring back to Alabama? You kind of alluded to this earlier, but most of my experience is with black students and Hispanic students and white students. So I would like to definitely have some exposure to schools that are serving First Nations people um, and First Nations communities. So maybe thinking about um, areas in Canada or in the southwest of the United States, because thinking about what cultural responsiveness looks like to them. What's one thing that you do every day or most days that helps to keep you well and healthy? I do try to be physically active, exercise, walk, um, go for jogs, go to the gym. Um, I feel when I don't do it, I feel bad. Um, so I, I try to do that when possible. What's an organization or a person who's inspiring you right now? So living in Alabama, the big topic is the Equal Justice Initiative and by um a fantastic human being, Brian Stevenson. They've just opened the memorial for peace and justice. And I just feel that to have the courage to open a museum and memorial dealing with lynchings in the United States and to encourage, you know, the, the country to acknowledge the history of wrongdoing just takes um, a commendable amount of courage. And I applaud their work and their efforts in, in, in that work. That's great. So let's talk about the future now. What's uh, what's next for you? What are some areas that you're interested in or what are some articles that we can look forward to seeing from you? Um, I alluded to it earlier. One of my recent publications is in the Journal of Educational Controversy, and that's The Revolution Will Be Live, Examining Educational Injustice Through the Lens of Black Lives Matter. I'm also currently working on a study on racial literacy and how teachers perceive their schools are responding in racial, racially equitable ways, and then how we can work with our faculty and staff and leadership to become 
more racially literate. Hmm. That's great. Now, let's say people are looking to connect with you. What are some of the best ways? Do you have a Twitter account or a website that we can direct people to? I do have a Twitter account. It's AJSamuels27. Um, I also have email, which um, I it's asamuels at montevallo.edu. Mm-hmm. So if you were looking to connect Twitter or email, would both be great ways. That sounds great. Thanks so much for speaking with us. I think... Uh, I think that you gave us a lot to think about, this whole idea of equity and things that we can do. So thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for my conversation with Dr. Amy Samuels. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with our next episode. In the meantime, you can catch all of our previous episodes at our website, www.intersectioneducation.com.